0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Big MX Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fox Racing Canada. Go to the website, find what you need, then go to your local dealer, support those guys, and uh, get yourself fitted head to toe in the latest and greatest from Fox Racing Canada. This podcast is also brought to you by... Guts Racing, Andy Gregg over at Guts Racing. They always say that people buy from people, not companies. And if you're looking for uh, someone to get behind as far as uh, um, a seat cover and a seat base and foam company, Andy Gregg is the greatest place to start. Um, Heart and soul guy, someone who... um, Supports the sport to the nth degree. Uh, he wears his heart on his sleeve. And uh, he's the right kind of person to uh, to back. So I would definitely suggest anyone who's looking for a brand new seat, whether it's a seat base, cover, or you need some new foam for your seat, go with Guts Racing. It's a fantastic company ran by a fantastic guy who, who really, truly loves the sport of motocross. And for that reason and that reason alone should be enough for you guys to go over to the website and order yourself something special. The turnaround time is always very quick. And I, uh, I highly recommend that brand, honestly, because they make great product and I love the people who run the company. This podcast is also brought to you by WUSA. John Anderson, Kristen Anderson uh, started W Wheels back in 2012. They do a fantastic job of making some of the most, the strongest and lightest wheel sets in North America, worldwide in fact, and uh, they work with some of the best components uh, that wheels in motocross have to offer whether it's uh, brand new spokes uh, whether you send your uh, stock hubs and have them build you something from stock hubs or build something uh, from the ground up uh, you're going to be happy with the product that you get from w wheels and if you mention big mx radio when ordering through w usa you're going to save some money and you're going to get uh, the you're going to get uh, some next level uh sorry alden baker just texted me back humble break um you're going to get done some next level um, customer service as well. This podcast is also brought to you by and with us is Phoenix Handlebars. Jason Gerald over at Phoenix Handlebars, great guy. He wants you guys to save some money on bars. So go and use discount code BIGMX15 on your next order uh, or any order that you have from Phoenix Handlebars on the website. Save, Save yourself 15%. Uh, We get a small slice of that sale, so that helps us out on this end, and um, when it comes to buying handlebars, uh, honestly, all the companies make great handlebars, but uh, when you want a handlebar that you're uh, going to spend a little bit less on, uh, that's going to perform extremely well, and you're buying it from a company that is all about the riding, all about getting out there and enjoying life on two wheels, um, look no further than phoenix handlebars Uh, like i said jason gerald over there is a fantastic guy so um wanted to come on the podcast today and do something a little bit different something that i've wanted to launch for a while now um been doing a lot of research uh doing a lot of uh tabulating stats facts um and, and and sort of diving a little bit deeper than i ever have within the sport of motocross to sort of uncover some of the more interesting little tidbits that I feel are the glue that keeps the love of the sport together. It's the heritage, it's the um, uh, the history of motocross that uh, can, can really help people fall in love with it and, uh, and uh, dig themselves just as deep as I am because uh, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, this stuff's on my mind. Uh, pretty much 24 hours a day. Um, If if you're you're a friend of mine that you're listening, you probably know that I'm a big hockey fan as well as a football fan. But uh, honestly, my first love um, always comes back to the great sport of motocross. It's something I make time for. It's something that I analyze at a deeper level and uh, something that I'm always finding myself digging back and finding out some of the uh, the old stories that uh, I may have missed, because uh, obviously uh, being born in 1988, uh, a lot of motocross history ca- happened before I was born, um, and I didn't start riding until I was nine. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot for me to catch up on, and I've done exactly that, and that's honestly why I started the podcast to begin with, is just how, fu- how much I had gone back and doing some reading and doing some... Uh, some fact-checking and stuff like that that really helped me sort of understand uh, this sport and how it's evolved over the years, and it has evolved. The sport of motocross is, honestly, it's an ever-evolving thing, and it's it's really interesting to watch the sport of motocross evolve because um, a lot of just your typical fan will uh, sort of gauge where motocross is versus uh, other sports, um, even other motorsports. And not that's not always fair. Um, motocross, as far as its history goes, is still rather young. As far as if you if you think about uh, say, a sport like football or hockey, uh, those sports have been evolving at the pro level for over a hundred years. In fact, like some some hockey teams and and football franchises for that matter uh, have been around for in excess of one hundred years. Whereas in motocross. Uh, the sport itself uh, really only has about fifty, maybe sixty years of total history, and uh, and it, and it's been evolving ever since. Like it's a, it's not a totally indifferent than uh, when you look at the earliest years of those other like mainstay sports, those mainstream sports. Like they were va- rather amateurish uh, in their earliest days. Heck, um, like when you take the an example of say uh, the NHL for hockey, for example, um, like for the first 10 or 15 years that down like the, the top prize in hockey, the Stanley Cup, the t- first 10 years that it existed, it was a challenge cup. Like literally anyone could just challenge for it. Uh, it was a seven game series. Uh, That uh, essentially anyone who had the gumption to uh, say, "Hey, we can, we'll we'll challenge whoever currently owns that trophy uh, for it," and they would just play for it, and uh, um, and they're like, they always say like that. Like some people talk about the original six. As far I don't want to get too far on the hockey uh, tangent here, but the original six are not the only original six. That's not the only six that existed. Uh, six teams that existed in the NHL Uh, there were a number of teams that existed within the dominion of the NHL um, but there were six that lasted the the original six that continued and and didn't disband in a short order, there was the Montreal Maroons that lasted for a very short period of time Uh, there was an Ottawa team uh, that um, that was that came in and then went, went away quickly there was also a team in uh, that was before the New York Rangers which were uh, the New York Americans um, and they didn't last for very long uh, but they did play for the Stanley Cup and I believe they even went to the conference finals uh, back when there was only the six seven or seven teams in the NHL uh, but either way um, just going to show that um, like the early years of a sport can be very different than how it ends up being, uh, and sports like hockey and football are still evolving, and motocross will continue to do the same. Uh, so let this be the first installment of uh, a, a style of podcast, a podcast series that I will be calling The Ongoing History of Motocross. Now if you um, are, are close uh, f- friends with myself, you've probably heard me talk about the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, which is Is which is hosted by a good friend of mine whose name is alan cross i listened to him in high school and uh he's honestly a big inspiration for me to want to pick up a microphone period just because of how he delivers uh any information like he the way he reads scripts the way he um dives really deep into certain uh, aspects of of music and just all of his his facts and stats and stuff like that. I always loved the way that he was able to paint the picture, and I hope that I'm able to do something even one-tenth of what Alan Cross does with the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, which is a Canadian-based podcast that chronalizes, um, maybe not chronalizes, but definitely looks back upon the entire history of uh, alt rock uh, in all of its forms from the like the beginning of rock music in general to all of the offshoots which is basically unlimited uh, as far as uh, the different genres that exist within that so he's kind of sort of unpacked those and how those have kind of taken over time um and i'm looking to do something very similar with the sport of motocross uh there's a ton of stories that uh, have not been told have uh, maybe been told years and years and years ago but have uh, been left in the darkness ever since um and hopefully within this uh this series of podcasts you'll come to find a deeper understanding of the sport of motocross and uh, and really uh, be able to uh, dive a little bit deeper yourself uh maybe it'll spur some interest to go watch some old races um, and and just sort of uh, call upon some of the stuff that we've enjoyed over the years. Uh, maybe you just got into the sport the last five years or so and uh, don't look now, but you got about 45 years of motocross history that happened before you tuned in. Um, so let, let's just assume that uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that uh, you don't already know and uh, sometimes i take for granted uh how long i've been at this and how how many different races that i've watched over the years uh whether i've been able to go to in person or watch them on youtube there's an absolute ton of uh of content on youtube to watch if you're interested there's full races i also find them really interesting because you get to see old commercials that uh that run and you kind of just scratch your head as to like how companies used to advertise themselves that way like you see some of the uh 1-800 collect commercials and you're like that actually worked and honestly in the end it probably didn't really work that well uh because that uh mode of uh communication doesn't really exist anymore no one really uses um 1-800-COLLECT or collect calls in general. That's uh, That has gone the way of the two-stroke uh, in motocross terms. But uh, let's kick off the first official episode of the ongoing history of motocross with uh, part one of a series I'm calling Famous Firsts. Famous Firsts are um, a basically a list or a a tabulation of things that happened for the very first time that uh, up until then had never happened before. And um, yeah, they they likely happened a a number of times after that. Um, And uh, a lot of these are the ones that I will go on this list. uh, there, There are a ton more uh, to go through, and these are just some of the ones that sort of, during my research, uh, the first ones that sort of came across my table that uh, I really found to be interesting, and something that maybe I didn't even know at the time, uh, so I wanted to share those with you, and let's kick things off with the first time uh, electric fuel-injected motorcycle one a ama supercross or motocross event and uh, for that you have to go all the way back to the year 2009 um of course suzuki it's kind of hilarious to think of now that they were uh the the leader of the pack when going when it came to going efi they went full efi in 2008 but unfortunately, Suzuki 450s, uh, did not find themselves at the top step of the podium in 2008. If you recall, that was the year James Stewart went 24 and 0 outdoors. And of course he was doing so on a carbureted Kawasaki 450. Uh, and so no, no one, uh, won any 450 races, um, outdoors on a in 2008 on anything other than a kawasaki 450 and uh he also uh that year well he actually sat out the the majority of that year on um for, for Supercross, because he had uh, injured his knee towards ACL, uh, but the 2008 season was the last year that we saw Chad Reed take the top step of the podium in the Supercross Championship. Uh, great great season for him. He was racing for the Sam Wenwell uh, Band of Indians Yamaha team and did extremely well. He traded off wins with uh, Kevin Wyndham as well, and a few others who uh, had a few cracks at it, but honestly, it was that particular year, it was the Chad Reed show. Ricky Carmichael had retired the year prior, and uh, yeah, so it was just it was like kind of a, a table set for Chad and James to go at it. James hurts his knee about, I think it was two or three, se- two or three rounds into the series that year. Uh, and by some sort of miracle, while working with Alden Baker, uh, James Stewart was able to come back and uh, go 24-0, uh, coming off of a knee injury, not totally unlike Ricky Carmichael had done four years prior, uh, also being trained by Alden Baker, uh, going 24-0 in 2004. So we had to wait until Indianapolis 2009, uh, famously Chad Reed moving to Suzuki uh, after uh, racing uh, for multiple seasons with the San Manuel Yamaha team. Um, he was in a contract dispute going into that season, and uh, uh, not totally unlike Ken Roxon's situation with having Steve Estefan as his uh, representation, Chad Reed uh, was asking for maybe a little bit too much money, and uh, he ended up um, having to switch over to Suzuki, and uh, after having an abysmal round one, Chad uh, or, uh, Josh Grant actually grabbed the Anaheim one win, At um, Anaheim won 2009, Uh, James Stewart, uh, I think he crashed out of that particular race and then uh, went ahead and I believe he won seven straight, which led into Indianapolis 2009, where Chad Reed was able to get his very first win. If I'm not mistaken, uh, that was um, a a year where uh, James Stewart actually ended up, uh, he was looking good. He was looking like he was definitely going to win Indy 09, but ends up stalling the motorcycle, going down, and Chad Reed was able to capitalize and win. So the very first time that we had an electric fuel-injected 450 motorcycle win a Supercross was Chad Reed Indianapolis 2009. Uh, And he ended up going on to win uh, Daytona the very following week and uh, would also go on to have the very first championship uh, on a 450 uh, on an EFI machine uh, later that summer uh, when famously he uh, bet, bet on himself, uh, took out an insurance policy with Lords of London, uh, Lloyd's of London, and uh, ended up winning the 2009 outdoor title uh, when it was the end kind of the championship that nobody wanted. Um, James Stewart out with injury, um a lot of other guys had some cracks at it um that was the year that uh Michael Essie won a ton of races ended up going and uh like yeah Michael Essie ends up going down that year um breaking his patella trying to come back 14 days later couldn't make it happen Josh Grant took him out in Thunder Valley um and there was a bunch of drama with that the universe was going to get uh Josh Grant but uh either way uh, yeah, it was Chad Reed ended up uh, going ahead and winning that championship uh, over uh, the likes of Michael Essie and uh, and many others who had uh, a- attempted that championship. Uh, well, here's a, a famous first that people might already know, uh, but um, we'll start off with the win that kicked off the f- number, like the, basically what I would consider to be the um, one of the most unbreakable records in the sport of motocross and supercross, and that's Jeremy McGrath's 72 wins. Uh, personally, I don't think anyone's going to come anywhere close to that. Um, obviously, um, you have Eli Tomac, who I think now sits second or he's second or third in all time wins for supercross. He'll probably surpass that and, uh, probably push into, uh, the, upwards of 50 wins for his career but he would then have to win another 22 um wins to be able to uh to swing at Jeremy McGrath but where it all started uh Jeremy McGrath 1993 Anaheim won, Anaheim won in fact that was the only Anaheim race that they uh, they raced back in 1993 he ends up taking the lead over Jeff Stanton and honestly that was a massive passing of the torch. In the sport of Motocross, uh, adorned with some beautiful Cinesalo gear. Jeremy McGrath jumped into the hearts of Motocross fans everywhere when he dethroned um Jeff Stanton uh and uh yeah raced away to to take on, I believe it was he won another six rounds that year. And as a rookie, that is absolutely unheard of. In fact, at that time it was it was basically it was ridiculous to win that many Supercrosses in one particular year. Uh, a lot of the time, like if you look back to the '80s, a lot of the championships were won with two or three wins, four or five wins at the absolute most. Uh, was, so, to win that many races in his rookie season on a 252 stroke, Jeremy McGrath had arrived and did extremely well. Uh, going forward, obviously, completely dominated the '90s and even into uh, the 2000 season as well. Was con- incredibly dominant, Um, switching gears to another incredibly dominant um, team, you'd say, like, they're, they're, they've been, they've been dominant all the way since they very, first year they started, which is the, uh, they were originally the team peak pro circuit uh, team, they were originally on Hondas for uh, their first three seasons, and then they switched to Kawasaki's, 1993 obviously is a huge year for jeremy mcgrath everyone talks about that particular year being uh jeremy's year um and sort of what gets lost in the wash there and rightfully so because the 125 class uh back then didn't get nearly as much notoriety um but that would soon change when jeremy mcgrath would just knock down just be automatically knocking down championships uh, which uh, forced teams to really covet those 250 championships that much more, the 125 championships. And uh, so it was a huge gamble for um, Mitch Payton to go with Kawasaki. He had lost the factory uh, support from Honda that he had enjoyed the previous years. And obviously those those bikes were incredibly good and incredibly strong. Um, and that's really like what put Mitch Payton's like, Put put Mitch Payton on the map, honestly. Like prior to that, uh, there's the joke of uh, Jeremy McGrath uh, or Jack McGrath actually saying that we're not going to race for no hop-up shot. And if that was sort of the the perception of uh, Mitch Payton and Pro Circuit prior to 1990, uh, that by 1993, that had seriously changed. Obviously, at that point, Mitch was building some of the most fire-breathing racing engines, both in the 125 and the 250 class um and they took on a serious challenge by taking on Kawasaki as the manufacturer that they would use um and they weren't the factory effort either um at that time Kawasaki had factory uh factory riders they had uh a factory team uh, in fact they would race against against factory Kawasaki for a number of years after that with guys like uh um Damon Huffman in the 250 class, as well as uh, Robbie Raynard, would famously race a 252 stroke uh, or yeah, a 125 two-stroke against uh, Pro Circuit. James Stewart did the exact same thing when uh, when Big James Stewart decided that he absolutely 100% needed to race for Factory Kawasaki, not Pro Circuit. Uh, but in 1993, Mitch Payton switched to Kawasaki's. And, uh, there was a lot of doubt of whether or not he was going to be able to maintain the same level of success now, not having Jeremy McGrath on his team and also not having the back of Honda. Um, they went out and they went out and got Jimmy Gaddis, who was honestly, he was a, like he, he was a bit underrated as far as his performances on the amateur level. He raced with guys like Jimmy Button and Buddy Antonez and was always sort of in the mix um, and, uh, those guys weren't able to grab themselves a, a, professional, uh, championship, uh, in Supercross, but Jimmy Gaddis was, and he was able to do so by winning the very first championship on a KX 125 for Mitch Payton back in 1993. And, uh, that was, that's super notable to me is that Jimmy Gaddis went out and won that championship. He had a fantastic year and, uh, honestly really fizzled out after that. Didn't really do a whole heck of a lot, got some injuries and, uh, to this day, you don't really hear a lot about Jimmy Gaddis, but what kicked it all off for the Mitch Payton and the Kawasaki's was uh, was Jimmy Gaddis, 1993, and he did exactly that. So famous first, uh, you can't really have a podcast about famous first without talking about Ricky Carmichael, um, and. Um, like, when it comes to, like, you have all these guys who these amateurs come out and uh, they don't set the world on fire and everyone is immediately worried about them. Uh, all I have to point to you is uh, Rookie Carmichael's very first professional race, uh, last race of the season in 1996, Steel City. He ends up 8th overall. Uh, and now, 8th overall is nothing to sneeze at. It's a fantastic, it's it's honestly, a, to be top 10, your first race is uh is pretty spa- is pretty spectacular. Kevin Windham actually ended up winning that race that day, uh, and I believe um, actually the the next person to beat Ricky Carmichael was Brian Deegan, who uh, it would go on to the uh, L.A. Coliseum, the opening round of the 1997 season. Um, Carmichael was on the line, and I think he ended up 11th with um Brian Deegan winning. So um. It's pretty pretty crazy to think that uh, like Jim or Ricky Carmichael getting into the, the beginning of this series and beginning of his career that would go on to become the greatest motocross racer that ever lived. Uh, he'd go out there and his first of his first results were an eighth and and, a, and an eleventh, and um, there were some question marks whether or not he was going to be able to to, uh, to really um make something special happen in the pros but honestly by the time he had gone to his uh his second outdoor national ever which ended up being I believe his fourth fourth pro race uh in general he already had a win under his belt when he won the Atlanta Supercross on a 125 and then he would go on to win um the Gatorback or the Gainesville National 1997 and uh, he would actually go on to win seven of 12 outdoor nationals that particular year in his rookie season a great rookie season um and uh yeah wearing number 70 and absolutely kicking everyone's ass uh Ricky Carmichael basically uh had the the, the littlest of a rocky start to his career and basically just started going on and winning um, so we, we are about thirty five days, thirty four days away, or about forty five days away from uh, Anaheim One, two thousand and twenty three. Uh, and some might ask, when was the first time we headed there? And honestly, like the first Anaheim One, it wasn't even really called Anaheim. The it wasn't even called the Anaheim race. It was actually a, it was considered a Los Angeles race. It was still ha- it was still um, hosted at the Anaheim Angels Stadium. Uh, but uh, at that time, it was uh, technically an, it was a, a, a Los Angeles race. Uh, it was uh, June 22nd. So th- first of all, the fact that we raced in in June for Supercross lets you know that the Supercross schedule back in the day was all over the place. They would race randomly. Uh, it was basically just like. Um, the first, the first year, I believe there was three events, and then the, the second year there was four events. We're gonna get to that in just a few minutes here. Uh, but seventy four, um, and uh, I was actually surprised with the results, given the fact that Pierre Carsmakers ended up winning that championship. He's the very first champion in Supercross history. He wasn't even on the podium this particular day, um, but uh, Euroslav Flada, uh, Falada uh, on a CZ won that race followed by uh, Roger Decoster and Marty Tripes. so we did have a a, a an American on the podium but uh, Roger Decoster taking home a second place trophy um, and I'll have to do some uh, some research whether or not uh, Roger Decoster ended up actually winning a supercross I'd be surprised to find out that he did not win one at all um, but I was I actually was surprised to find out that he yeah, he wrote race supercross. Uh, of any form, uh, because obviously he was so well-known for racing the Trans AMA Series, as well as his uh, multi-time world championships that he raced in the MXGPs. But uh, Supercross, he was obviously not known for, as he was sort of on his way out as a as a champion when that, that sport was just sort of getting its legs. Um, and then, so, yeah, so you have Marty Tripes. The very first Anaheim one was... Just shy of 50 years ago. It was 49 years ago. And, uh, Flada, uh, uh, or Falta. Yuroslav Falta on a CZ ended up winning that race. Um, and that's pretty cool. Uh, the first American to win a supercross would come on that, in that very same year, 1974. And that's Jim Pomeroy, who also was the very first American to win a, uh, an MXGP. Uh, he would go over to win later on in his career uh, to win a, 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 a motocross GP um, and he was celebrated for that for a lot of years. So that was pretty cool that in the very first season of Supercross, you had an American winner. So that leads me to my next one and you guys can uh, let me know if this one really counts and it would be, it would like obviously 1997 or 1996 for Jamie McGrath when he won 13 in a row, he won all, but I think two uh, of the races that particular year, I believe. Uh, in fact, I think he only just, he only lost the one to Jer- to uh, Jeff Emig in St. Louis, 1996. Um, Jeff ended up winning that particular race. I think that was the only race that Jeremy McGrath didn't win in 1996. So close to a perfect season. In 2001, Ricky Carmichael won rounds two and then four and then the rest of the rounds. So Jeremy McGrath won won rounds one and three and then uh, Ricky Carmichael won the rest. Damn close to a perfect season, uh, but not quite either. Uh, but there has been a perfect season in the sport of Supercross, but I don't know that it counts. Back in 1974, the Supercross Championship was only four rounds, but every single one of them was won by Jimmy Ellis, who was, I believe, on a can back in the day. Um, Jimmy Ellis, fantastic racer, he won all f- all four uh, four rounds of Supercross back in 1974, making it the only to this date. Uh, and the first Supercross perfect season. You guys can uh, hit me in DM on Instagram whether or not you think that uh, the 1975 perfect season from Jimmy Ellis counts. Um, but uh, to me, it does because that was you, you got. You, you can't really uh, like. Who's who's to know if there was more races he would have won or lost them? But uh, the races that were were scheduled, he won them all. Um. And then, uh, to close out the podcast, let's, let's talk about when the world sort of changed is in the sport of motocross. Uh, obviously I, you guys know I'm a huge two stroke guy. I love my two strokes. Um, but, uh, there was a time when the four strokes came in and, uh, took care of business and they really never looked back and, uh, that's, um, and where it all kicked off. And it's, it's funny to me that, uh, a guy who would go on to, or who had gone on to win a lot of races on a one twenty five, uh, still races raced a two stroke after um, retiring. In uh, in Doug Henry, would has laid claim to the first four stroke to win a uh, a supercross as well as an outdoor national, and that's on the, in the exact same year, uh, nineteen ninety eight. He went on to win the final round, which was Vegas, nineteen ninety eight um the year that it was famously the night where the lights went out uh there was there wasn't enough lighting for guys like jeremy mcgrath and many others who uh, basically boycotted the race saying it wasn't safe um and uh, doug henry went out there raced and uh, took the win um vegas 1998 and then later on that season and of course it was at a place like southwick uh doug henry become the first ever um professional motocross racer to win an outdoor national on a four fifty on a four stroke. And he did so on the YZ four hundred, uh, which at that time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the rule the AMA rule for engine displacement was as high as I believe if it if it wasn't six fifty, it was five fifty. Uh so who's to know the actual displacement of that bike? Uh of course famously um Doug would go on to win that championship uh, outdoors and uh, on, on a really exotic bike um the 1998 um YZ 400 uh that was the production bike for 1999 um, but two strokes, uh, hung on for another seven years of winning championships and winning races. And it wasn't until the end of the 2006 season that we saw, uh, no one race one, uh, at the, like on a factory team, uh, in, in the, uh, 250 class or what you'd call the 450 class and then uh, obviously we still saw uh, some 125s lineup uh, for in 2006 for Yamaha of Troy, uh, Brett, Ka- Brett Metcalf rode one as well as I believe 19- 2005 was the last year that you saw KTM 125 from a factory effort be raced in professional motocross and that was none other than Ryan Hughes. He hated that bike. Uh, I think that was 2004-2005. Um, and then someone else raced one before they got a four stroke in 2005. Uh, so that's, uh, that's some famous firsts for you guys here on the big MX radio podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope you may have learned something throughout it. Uh, if you have some suggestions or some, uh, some questions about the history of motocross, the ongoing history of motocross, please shoot me an email at bradgebhart88 on, at gmail.com, or you can always send me a DM on Instagram at BigMXRadio. I listen to and uh, read every single one of the direct messages that come my way, so don't be afraid to reach out. We'd love to chat with you guys. Um, so that's it. I uh, appreciate everyone for taking the time to listen to the Big Radio podcast. Uh, sorry if the uh, my vocals aren't absolutely tip-top, as I'm still sort of uh, battling back from COVID a little bit, uh, but uh, doing my best here to uh, entertain and inform on the Big MX Radio podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, Support the sponsors, WUSA, Fox Racing Canada, um, Phoenix Handlebars, Guts Racing, and uh, yeah, everyone for uh, taking the time to listen to the podcast and uh, do the thing. So uh, yeah, you guys have a great rest of your day. And as always, thanks for listening.